To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours. We want cattle who can finally become food. We want to suck in. We are empty and would be filled. Hello, everyone, and welcome to B-Sides, our podcast between Sundays, and we are following the message from 2 Kings chapters 14 through 17 entitled, How Idolatry Works, and we are calling this Modern Idolatry. That quote that we opened with was from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, in which we see letters written from a mature demon to a younger demon. And there we see that they are hollow, empty beings seeking life, seeking to be filled with substance. And that is what they are after. By getting us to fall into idolatry, they are filled. The power that God gave humanity by making them in his image, we give over to the forces of darkness when we fall for idolatry. And that's one of the key verses we highlighted in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 15. We read that Israel went after false gods and became false. That word false in the Hebrew is hevel, and it refers to emptiness, shallowness, hollowness, vanity, mist. All of this refers to it's got no substance. There's a shell, but there's nothing inside And we become empty when we give our devotion over to something that needs to consume it, rather than when we give our devotion over to God, who seeks to give it back in return. So in this episode, four parts about modern idolatry. Part one, we will look at the Samaritan scroll. What if Samaria had a newspaper right before the fall? What would that sound like? In part two, the temple of consumerism. It's the mall. Part three, the normalization of pagan festivals. We will take a look at the electric daisy carnival and rave culture. And in part four, racism is idolatry. Part 1, The Samaritan Scroll. What if Samaria had a newspaper that reported the impending doom that came upon them from the Assyrians? Like ours, it would focus on politics, wouldn't it? But that's only half the story. See, the prophets come in to say, no! The fall of Israel, the fall of Samaria is not a political problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's because, Israel, we have turned to idolatry. But what would their accounts look like if you didn't have the voice of the prophet? Here I propose some fictitious articles coming from the fictitious Samaritan scroll. And here we're going to look at it 
through the lens of two parties, the Silver Party and the Sword Party. Article 1. Menahem pays off Assyrian invasion. The Assyrian Empire continues to expand. Like a river over flooding its banks, this evil force came right to our borders. It likely would have flooded our entire kingdom in terror, but Menahem engaged into talks with Assyrian king Pool. Pool demanded 3,750 pounds of silver. An inside source has informed me that Menahem lifted his tribute from his own aristocracy. No taxes were raised. No men sent into war. This courageous move deserves our support, said one Silver Party member, for he warded off a threat without harming our economy. While the Silver Party praises the king's decision, the Sword Party has poured heavy criticism. Support, exclaimed one leader of the Sword Party. We cannot support a king who takes money from our wealthiest. If they lose their wealth, we lose our jobs. Another criticized the Silver Party's claim that he did this without raising taxes. Sure, he didn't raise taxes, but how will the aristocracy make up for their losses? In the end, it's commoners like you and me who will feel the pain of this tribute. Finally, one must wonder if a third complaint will eventually come back to bite us. What will happen next time Poole demands tribute, argued another member of the Sword Party. Who will Menahem rob next? The poor? I'm sure King Poole will appreciate that bounty. Article 2. Pekka, pecked by Assyria. When news that the Assyrians were making their second arrival to our kingdom, speculation buzzed for weeks about whether King Pekka would follow Menahem's policy and pay off the Assyrians. The debates were fierce. The Silver Party wanted to raise taxes and pay them off. The Sword Party wanted to raise more troops and fight them off. Sword Party. It is clear now that Menahem crippled our economy. We cannot afford to pay Assyria anymore. Lower-income Samaritans are starving. We can call on local nations for support. This is a time to rally with our neighbors for war. Silver Party. The Assyrian army employs brutal terror tactics. Across the world they stack the skulls of those they conquered, leaving monuments of their terror everywhere they go. In one kingdom, they flayed the leaders alive and pulled out their tongues. This is not a king to be messed with. We should not subject our children or our leaders to such torment. Let them have whatever resources we have. A man of war himself, Pekka assassinated Menahem's son to take the throne. Perhaps it wasn't surprising when he sided with the sword party. When Assyria closed in on Samaria, desecrating several cities along the way, Pekka finally surrendered. In the end, he paid the heavy tribute and sacrificed the lives of so many. Last night, Hoshea executed a perfectly planned conspiracy and killed Pekka. Perhaps this new king can lead us back toward prosperity. Article 3. Samaria Under Siege When Hoshea took the throne, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came against him. Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute, but the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. 
Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. How did we get here? When Menahem supported the silver party, many rejoiced, but Assyria invaded again, and we realized he merely put an expensive bandage on a gushing wound. So Pekah sided with the sword party, sending thousands to their deaths and permitting the gruesome torture endured by the border cities. So he surrendered and gave tribute. In the end, he paid even more than Menahem. Now we are stung by both policies. Look out over the city wall and you will see it. Like bees swarming a hive, the Assyrians busy themselves around Samaria, blockading highways, raiding orchards, cutting down trees, and building siege ramps. Women are eating their own children and men drinking their own urine. We sit in a city-sized tomb without silver or army, just a fate. It is only a matter of time before the Assyrians strike. The policies of our kings have failed us. Or the decisions of the people not to follow Yahweh has failed them. That is an imaginative account of what the newspapers would have said about Samaria's, excuse me, Samaritan's policies. But what did God's prophets say? Worth the entirety of its reading... Second Kings chapter 17, verse 7 through 23, tell us what the prophets say about this. I will just read this. And this, the doom, the fall, the exile, occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God. And they feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations. Sometimes the stories we tell ourselves just don't go deep enough to the true story underneath. Sometimes we must admit that we are in the wrong and we must confess and repent or else we will experience exile. Part 2, The Mall as the Temple of Consumerism. Perhaps you've heard this parable. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, What in the world is water? That parable illustrates the fact that we are not always aware of what we've been immersed in for our whole lives. And so in this part, I'm going to read an excerpt from the book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit by James K.A. Smith, where he describes the mall as a modern temple. The mall is a religious site, not because it is theological, but because it is liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or its messages, but in its rituals. The mall doesn't care what you think 
but it is very much interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. So you need to readjust your eyes to see this familiar place, the mall. Put on a liturgical lens and look at your local mall again. Read its spaces, its practices, its rituals. What might you see? We arrive at one of the several grandiose entries to the building, channeling us through a colonnade of chromed arches to the towering glass face with doors lining its base. As we enter the space, we are ushered into a narthex of sorts, intending for receiving, orienting, and channeling new seekers, as well as providing a bit of decompression space for the regular faithful to enter in to the spirit of the space. For the seeker, there is a large map, a kind of worship aid to help orient the novice to the location of various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observance of the pilgrims. The design of the interior is inviting to an almost excessive degree, drawing both seekers and the faithful into the enclosed interior spaces. With windows on the ceiling open to the sky, but none on the walls open to the surrounding moat of automobiles. The sense conveyed is one of vertical or transcendent openness that at the same time shuts off the clamor and distractions of the horizontal, mundane world. This architectural mode of enclosure and enfolding suggests sanctuary, retreat, and escape. From the narthex entry, one is invited to lose oneself in this space that channels the pilgrim into a labyrinth of octagons and circles, inviting a wandering that seems to escape from the driven, goal-oriented ways we inhabit the outside world. The pilgrim is also invited to escape from the mundane ticking of clock time to inhabit a space governed by a different time, even a sort of timelessness. With few windows and a curious Baroque manipulation of light, it almost seems as if the sun stands still in this space as we lose consciousness of time's passing and so lose ourselves in the rituals for which we've come. However, while daily clock time is suspended, the worship space is governed by a kind of liturgical festal calendar variously draped in colors, symbols, and images of an unending litany of holidays and festivals, to which new ones are regularly added since the establishment of each new festival translates into greater numbers of pilgrims joining the processions to the sanctuary and engaging in worship. The layout of this temple has architectural echoes that harken back to medieval cathedrals. Mammoth religious spaces designed to absorb all kinds of religious activities happening at one time. And so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation, alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints. As we wander the labyrinth in contemplation, preparing to enter one of the chapels, we'll be struck by the rich iconography that lines the walls and interior spaces. Unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find in stained glass windows, here one finds an array of three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that, as with all iconography, inspires our desires to be intimidators of these exemplars. These statues and icons, 
mannequins, embody for us concrete images of the good life. These are the ideals of perfection to which we will learn to aspire. This temple, like countless others now emerging around the world, offers a rich embodied visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires. It compels us to come, not through dire moralisms, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in this envisioned good life. As we pause to reflect on some of the icons on the outside of one of the chapels, we are thereby invited to consider what's happening within, invited to enter into the act of worship more properly, invited to taste and see. We are greeted by a welcoming acolyte, or a priest, who offers to shepherd us through the experience, but also has the wisdom to allow us to explore on our own terms if we so choose. Sometimes we will enter cautiously, curiously, tentatively, making our way through this labyrinth, within the labyrinth, having a vague sense of need but unsure of how it will be fulfilled, and so open to surprise to that moment where the Spirit leads us to an experience we couldn't have anticipated. Having a sense of our need, we come looking, not sure what for, but expectant, knowing that what we need must be here, and then we hit upon it. Combing through the racks, we find the experience and offering that will provide fulfillment. At other times, our worship is intentional, directed, and resolute. We have come prepared just for this moment, knowing exactly why we're here, in search of exactly what we need. In either case, after time spent focusing on and searching in what the faithful call the racks, with our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar that is the consummation of worship. While priests and other worship assistants have helped us navigate our experience, behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction. And this is a religion of transaction, of exchange and communion. When invited to worship here, we are not only invited to give, we are invited to take. We don't leave this transformative experience with just good feeling or pious generalities, but rather with something concrete and tangible, with newly minted relics, as it were which are themselves the means to the good life embodied in the icons who invited us into this participatory moment in the first place. And so we make our sacrifice, leave our donation, and get in return something with solidity that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints and the season. Released by the priest with a benediction, we make our way out of the chapel in a kind of denouement, not necessarily with the intention of leaving, our awareness of time has been muted, but rather to continue contemplation and be invited into another chapel. Who could resist the tangible realities of the good life so abundantly and invitingly offered? Tell me that that isn't good stuff. What a creative envisioning of the mall as a temple. And the scary thing is, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It is there. 
This is the temple of consumerism. The author Smith then goes on to make four points about how we interact in this temple. Number one, I'm broken, therefore I shop. Given the smiling faces that peer at us, from beer commercials to the wealthy people who populate the world of sitcoms, we are sometimes prone to suppose that the culture of consumerism is one of unbridled optimism, looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. But this misses an important element of the mall's rituals, its own construal of the brokenness of the world, which issues not in confession but in consumption. One might say that this is the mall's equivalent to sin. Number two, I shop with others. Haven't you noticed that going to the mall is a social event? And sometimes we don't go to the mall to buy something. We go to the mall to be with people. Number three, I shop and I shop and I shop. Therefore, I am. Smith says, If these icons of the ideal subtly impress upon us what's wrong with us and where we fail, then the market's liturgies are really an invitation to rectify the problem. They hold out a sort of redemption in and through the goods and services the market provides. Goods and services will save you. The mall holds out consumption as redemption. And so our shopping becomes our answer to what's wrong with us. And then fourth, don't ask, don't tell. Smith writes, in particular, they don't want us to ask, where does all this stuff come from? Instead, they encourage us to accept a certain magic, the myth that the garments and the equipment that circulate from the mall through our homes and into the landfill simply emerge in shops as if dropped by aliens. The processes of production and transport remain hidden and invisible, like the entrances and exits for the characters at Disney World. This invisibility is not accidental. It is necessary in order for us not to see that this way of life is unsustainable and selfishly lives off the backs of those in the majority world. Wow. And when you do think about that, it just seems wrong. So much of our, so much of our stuff and our goods comes from either child labor or slavery. Yet it's something we don't like to hear about. Because, like the newspaper, the Samaritan Scroll versus the Prophet, the Samaritan Scroll just wants to tell you about sales and deals, but the Prophet wants to say, yeah, but what's the story behind all that? How can we get that for so cheap? Whose life was risked so that we can have that sale? The conclusion of this is not necessarily to say that you are in sin if you go to the mall but it's to begin to open our eyes to see the culture around us that maybe we're swimming closer to idolatry than we originally thought.
part three, the normalization of pagan festivals, an eyewitness account of the electric daisy carnival. And just a heads up to parents, this material may contain themes not appropriate for children. This part is a recording of a conversation I had with Andrew Reynolds, whom, if you go to our fellowship, have seen playing on the drums from time to time. He lives in Las Vegas, works for a radio company, and he was sharing with me his regret that they sometimes have to work in some pretty hard scenes in Las Vegas, one being the rave culture, the Electric Daisy Carnival. He's had some time to reflect on it, as he's seen it a few times, and here he shares its similarities to ancient pagan festivals. He also makes a comparison with Isaiah chapter 13 and what he has seen at these raves. Babylon, the most glorious of kingdoms, the flower of Chaldean pride. We devastated like Sodom and Gomorrah, where God destroyed them. Babylon will never be inhabited again. It will remain empty for generation after generation. Nomads will refuse to camp there, and shepherds will not bed down their sheep. Desert animals will move into the ruined city, and the houses will be haunted by howling creatures. Owls will live among the ruins and wild goats will go there to dance. Hyenas will howl in its fortresses, and jackals will make dens in the luxurious palaces. Babylon's days are numbered. Its time of destruction will soon arrive. A normal thing we frequent at my job with um, radios is this event called ADC Electric Daisy Carnival. They hold it out very far from the strip and from like the normal Las Vegas, you know. You have to drive, um, uh, you know, on the freeway and you keep driving out and out and out to where you get more and more scarce and you see more and more desert as you see the strip behind you and even just the last edge of it. And you pass some plants, you pass, you know, certain truck stops and all the normal things, little, and it gets smaller. And you come to this gigantic raceway, which is usually held for NASCAR. Um, it's that kind of stadium, and they have, um, yeah, just this big old land, so it turns into madness for weeks and weeks on end, and especially for the three days, it's even more chaotic. For three days, from 4 p.m. to 6 a.m., is non-stop six to nine stages of DJs playing. walk in while the show's going on with all the bright lights and glamour going on roller coaster rides uh dj's playing and the light shows and the different things and it does look very enticing you know very cool neon colors very cool light effects i mean anything that you would deem pleasing even in normal senses um you know you you feel the bump of the bass thump the ground and um you know your chest the closer you get to it you see people of all walks of life and all manners of calm to dancer to insane to the drug user and um, drinker and everything. So very, very, very many um, walks of life come to this. For the life of EDC and for a raver usually implies 
obviously dancing, usually a lack of clothing, um, a lot of centralized, a lot of hippie movement kind of things with drugs and feel good and accept everyone, accept all. Um, nobody's rejected from here. So this is just diving into debauchery and just loving it. I mean, this is, this is a madhouse. In Disney's depiction of Pinocchio, um, at one point they um, enticement, enticement, luring, and hey, there's this boat going over this place called Pleasure Island for all these little boys. They take this ferry across, and it's kind of this desolated island, and and then you have everything. You want to break glass and get angry, you can. If you want to go fight, there's the fight tent. If you want to go drink beer, you drink beer and smoke and all this stuff. All the debauchery is there, and it and I and it was interesting that I haven't seen that movie in years, but that was the first depiction it came from, and it's funny when I mention when they turn into donkeys in the movie. It's kind of like, you know, it's a certain subliminal thing calling them stupid as well as calling them kind of like weakened because they lose their voices. They lose their power of strength and they're on all fours. They're not on two limbs anymore to stand up for themselves or their toughness of alcohol, drugs and anger and whatever else they debauched in held no merit because they were easily picked up, thrown in a cage and sold or whatever happened to them. Um, in the same way, there's it's the thing people laugh about, but it's the weirdest thing to see. And after the third day, third day is done, and you're getting to 6.30, 6.25, song keeps playing, 6.26, 27, 28, just keeps going, 29. But it, for some reason, it, it's, like, it's like a grandfather clock that hits and strikes, 6.30, boom, and it goes dead silent. There's no exit music there's no anything it becomes dead silent kind of like a gunshot or anything else and you sit dormant and the last thing you hear from the closest stage you have is like all right that was edc whatever year and we'll see you next year and it's silent again like i said there's no fading music of anything fun to kind of like leave them off with there's none it's dead silent and all you hear is the stampede of kids and people talking about it kind of finding their way gathering their senses gathering themselves and it's called the walk of shame and it's the weirdest thing to see a river of kids moving from they're exhausted whether they were on drugs or not from their alcohol consumption for their constant moving from you know who knows deafness of where they were with speakers um trying to find each other because some people are smart to hold up flags for their group they come with or wear certain colors something to kind of find their way back and there's two or three exit entry points and it's just the weirdest thing kind of like uh, if you've ever seen a sewer tunnel and obviously water runs through it that's how people are because one of the exits that i'm usually around um is this huge tunnel that cars usually go in to get ready and that's also the exit, so it's kind of like the sewage flowing out of the tunnel instead of coming in for the debauchery. The main portion, as any other event, would be the main stage. And as you walk towards the main stage, these gigantic statues like that of Egypt, you know, as tall as 
um, telephone poles are are standing on both sides of the entrance to um, to the main stage in front of you. And they have the body of a human, but they have the face of an owl. As I said, owls, they're like main proprietor animal that they gleam from. Um, and so, and and I always wondered why. And they're in um, Egyptian kind of clothing with the skirt kind of kilt thing on the bottom. They're topless. They're men bodies, by the way. And then, like I said, the mask face of an owl with the headdress on. Uh, and then they're holding the um, kind of Egyptian cross that has the hole on the top and then down to the bottom, kind of holding it as a staff. And I remember it being um, attached to um, mythology. I can't exactly remember which god. I don't know if it's Iris or Cyrus or something like that. But, but it's of Egyptian level to where it was kind of like the sign of power of life and death or power to the afterlife. So you see both of them holding out their cross um, thing downward, kind of like a downward angle towards the ground instead of like forward or towards their chest. They're kind of at angle. And their other hand is placed on their side flat, but then turning their palm outward with all their fingers collected. So now continue on. You go to the main stage. A man and a woman, once again, like 12 feet tall on the stage on the left and right, and they both held onto a heart in the center. It was about the size of their torsos, maybe a little bit bigger than their torso, facing inward, kind of like a holding a huge valentine or something like that. It wasn't anything like an animation where two, Mickey and Minnie Mouse are kissing and they have the heart above their head or holding hands. This is, they are holding this heart together. And out of, and they're both dressed from waist down and the woman's um, upper isn't signified in detail but like I said you could tell it's a man and woman and the one thing that struck me while the glitz and glamour and music nothing's going on was the enticement and the it gave off the impression of Adam and Eve in the garden as if like we love this fruit the fruit that damned us we actually love it and let's bask in it and let's and and the significance of that is that they've covered this um, fruit because the Bible doesn't determine if it was an apple or what fruit it was. But this fruit was obviously sin. And obviously the world now paints most, if not all, sin in some form of love. This is, uh, this is wrong. No, this is love. And this is okay. This is acceptable. This is okay. And, and I felt like, you know, instead of Eve took a bite and then gave it to Adam, they were, it was that relishment of like, let's do, let's have more, let's take our fill more and, and let's all celebrate the debauchery and the fall of man. Let's enjoy our sin. Let's dive into what we truly enjoy. You can call these tents, I don't know if, I don't know what they are, honestly. I don't know if they're video game tents. I don't know what they are. But, however, for any kind of resting side joint you go into, like Disneyland, they have the Mickey Mouse shop or the candy shop. They have designations like that, like, to give you that it's still in Disneyland, but it's a different portion. 
and there were titles of the Garden of Technology and the Garden of Science or, or Nature. Yeah, Garden of Nature. Not green, but nature. And you notice within just that word, stealing from Garden of Eden, perfection. Here's the Garden of Technology. Here's, you know, let's give technology our blessing and our praise for everything that it is, for everything that it influences. Let's go praise Mother Nature because that's the that's where we get our green. It's not God, it's Mother Nature. That's, you know, it's a very interesting vibe that you get. So I didn't partake in, in any of the things and or dances or scenes or anything. Just working, our, our uh, trailer was inside the grounds but off the premises of the dancing places. Um, so out of, while leaving, just leaving after having to work the shift and I'm leaving, getting out of there, there's a, there was a stage, um, you know, a good, um, a good 200 feet away, 300 feet away just to get to the entrance of this one main stage, not the main stage, just another good size one nearby. And you can obviously hear the bass and when I was, you had to obviously get closer and closer to where the exit was, and I felt the jolt of the bass thump, which just sent this whole shock of sexual feelings, turned onness. Ooh, I want to be a part of this group. I want to be connected to your energy, and I want to be connected to your fun and your uh, participation. Don't ask me how. I've been saved six, six-ish years. Um, you know, walking with Christ and had, like I said, not really my scene, not really my music. So I had no allure. And all of a sudden, just on my way out to where I got my bag in hand and I got a warm bed to get home to, I get that jolt of just like random feelings. And I not, and I had no idea where that came from. So the reason why reading the Isaiah 13 was these few things at the very end, as uh, everything I said, was very descriptive from living in Las Vegas. Nomads will refuse to camp there. Shepherds will not bed down their sheep. Desert animals will move into ruined cities. And the houses will be haunted by howling creatures. Desert animals, I think a desert rat, that's usually what you call a Las Vegan, usually. Um into ruined cities. I mean, it, it might not have been a city, but that arena or whatever is desolate. It's in the middle of nowhere, and you are on asphalt. It's no garden. Um, houses will be haunted by howling creatures. It's interesting houses, because if you think of tents or trailers, there's the medical tent, there's the VIP tent and all that, to where the whalings can be of good or bad intentions. Um, of sickness or fun. The next line down says, Owls will live among the ruins, and wild goats will go to there to dance. Owls, as a full biblical creature, um, is mainly, or mainly is looked down upon as dirty, as filthy, as wicked, as attached to sorcery and, and for, fortune-telling and all these other kinds of things. And it's interesting that EDC uses the owl as its main spearhead, which in... 
fortune tellers, psychics, and stuff like that, they usually gleam the, oh, he's foretelling, oh, he's the um, fertility and foreshadowing and kind of those more fortune teller-esque kind of things to play off of. The line where it says, and wild goats, goats will go there to dance. Interesting that it says dance, but the Bible refers um, in different translations and um, studies show that wild goats from NLT meant demons, as like demons will go there to dance, which makes sense. Um, the evilness, the debauchery kind of comes out of us, whether it's unsuspecting people that are just doing it or who knows of how many evil intent is just luring around um, naked to the human eye kind of like the depiction of passion of the christ to where the devil played that very pale but it was the onlooker was visually right there in the mist um to cause ruin and make sure things are happening hyenas will howl in its fortresses hyenas are usually referred to in cartoons as laughers and which is interesting that they will howl in its fortresses howl is not necessarily a pleasant yelling um and jackals will make dens in its luxurious places. It's very interesting because it's not a luxurious place. It's you set up camp in a desert to dance and then go home. Babylon's days are numbered and its time of destruction will soon arrive. I, I think it's just the full encompassment of idolatry. I think just like I said, the whole Pinocchio pleasure island factor. I think I think unsuspecting people to where it's just a dance. It's just a rave, you know, and even if you don't partake in the plenty of stupid and you just go there to dance, you're still getting influenced. You're still, whether the people, whether the music, the lyrics, the, I mean, so it's very interesting of how white people kind of don't see it for what it is. So many cultures and so many religions have certain dances. They do. They do dances for... Um, you know, in more Wiccan and which kind of things they do. They do things for fertility. They do things for curses. They do things for uh, punishment. They, and, you know, and like I said, it, it varies. But a dance to where this isn't swing dancing. This isn't the two-step. This isn't a gap between two people at a ball. This is debauchery. This This is... I can't, I can't wait to let loose. And let loose means you've taken your hand off the wheel and you've kind of let the ship take wherever the winds take it. You come to EDC as this huge pillar is just right in front of you. It means more than just, it's a display. It's, it's much more, this thing is luring over you, this thing has got your attention and you dance to my beat. You dance with me. You dance for me. You've come to worship me. And and the way you worship me is worshiping yourself. And so it, it kind of goes in that vicious circle over and over again to where burnout comes, the walk of shame comes, the unknown comes, the the mindlessness to what they've just encountered or even participated in. Um, it's very interesting, and that's just on a light scale. That's publicly put there. It's very interesting that they hold such a mass thing that's very bluntly, blatantly right in front of your face, and yet it's so missed of what it is that they do.
Part 4. Racism is Idolatry On October 27th, 2018, on a Saturday, there was a shooting in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life Synagogue. And it was very evident that this was an anti-Semitic move. This was done because the shooter, Mr. Bauer, had some hatred toward Jews. It was anti-Semitism, alive and well right here in our country. Then I read an article. On Monday, a search on Instagram, the photo-sharing site owned by Facebook, produced a torrent of anti-Semitic images and video uploads in the wake of Saturday's shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue. A search for the word Jews displayed 11,696 posts with the hashtag JewsDid911, claiming that Jews had orchestrated the September 11th terror attacks. Other hashtags on Instagram referenced Nazi ideology, including the number 88, an abbreviation used for the Nazi salute, Hail Hitler. 11,696. That was just on Instagram. Friends, racism is alive and well. Okay, so that happened in the news in real life in Pittsburgh. Then in 2 Kings chapter 17, we read about how the Assyrians capture Samaria and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and scatter the Jews around the world and bring people from around the world into Samaria. This was the Assyrian method of conquest. It was eliminate all traces of nationalism so that if we can get nationalities to intermarry with one another, we eliminate their culture, we eliminate their national pride, and we eliminate their races. You mix everything together, and they just fall into the status quo, and no one's going to revolt against the Assyrian Empire. So that happened. So many Samaritans are moved out, and many other nations are moved in, and so the Jews that remain in Samaria have to intermarry and interact or interact with some of the other nations, and soon, give it a generation or two or three, you have something that looks nothing like the Jewish culture from before. And this is the beginning of why we read in the New Testament of the hostilities between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, we're told in John chapter 4. They would often go out of their way from when they're walking from the north in Galilee down to Jerusalem in the south. Samaria lies in the middle. They would often walk out of their way in order to walk the circumference of that area rather than go through it. And for some good reason. There are historical accounts of Samaritans ambushing pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, and there was some bloodshed. And the Jews weren't perfect either. They launched an attack on some worshippers at Mount Gerizim in Samaria and killed some. There were bloody exchanges between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews thought themselves better, of pure blood, and the Samaritans were half-blooded Jews. They weren't really real Jews at all. In addition, the Jews worshipped at their own site instead of at the holy site in Jerusalem. They even had their own version of the Bible. So... They didn't like each other. And this all because of the idolatry. This racism stemmed out of Israel's idolatry. Because our narrator in 2 Kings 17 says, the exile happened because they worshipped other gods. 
enter Jesus. In one of the most famous passages, Jesus sits down with a Samaritan woman in Samaria. The disciples come up and see this and they're blown away. The woman is blown away that he, a Jew, is asking her, a Samaritan, for a cup of water. Jesus is friendly with her. He's listening to her life story. He's listening to her, to her concerns about worship and religion. Jesus accepts her as a human. In Luke 17, verses 11 through 19, we see the ten lepers who are healed. One, only one, upon seeing his cleansing, returns to give thanks to Jesus. And Luke rather climatically reveals that one was a Samaritan. This Samaritan gives thanks to Jesus, recognizes who he is. The Samaritan woman recognizes who he is. He's a prophet, and she tells all of the town about Jesus. Then, of course, we have in Luke chapter 10, the good Samaritan. It wasn't the Jewish priest. It wasn't the Jewish Levite who hurt or who helped the hurt man in the ditch. It was the Samaritan who helped him. And one of the points of that story is you and I are the hurt man. And sometimes we will be saved by the people we can't stand. We cannot afford to be racist. We need the other nationalities. And accepting other people who are different than us, accepting different cultures, and being open to people as being people and not just simply being the other or being different can save us. And here's one of the reasons why. The kingdom of God is not a particular culture, a particular society, a particular race, nation, or people. It is, in fact, all races, peoples, tribes, and nations. Need I read you any more than Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10? At the celebratory scene in heaven, John, the author, sees this. Jesus comes to the one seated on the throne and takes the scroll, which is probably the owner, the owning title deed of the earth, and all of heaven erupts and sings. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. In other words, to claim the earth as yours. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. People. Now, it's common for us to think that people refers to people like me, like you. We often envision the world from our egocentric point of view. But listen to how the Bible envisions the people of God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you, Jesus, have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So what we see is that the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be filled with people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, this is why a racist can't go to heaven. It isn't that that's a sin that's unpardonable. Rather, it's that a racist will look at heaven the new Jerusalem, and see within that city people of races and cultures and customs and languages and preferences that he not only can't stand, but hates. How could he ever want to live in that city? 
He will choose hell where he can make his own town exactly the way he wants it. So, if you're a white nationalist, hell's a place where you can have your white nationalist community. If we struggle with people who are not like us, how can we change? I think Jesus often provides a great example in the way that he ate with people. We see him eating with people who are definitely not like him, so-called sinners and tax collectors. And there's even inferences to prostitutes, although it doesn't actually say that. Um, and then we see him with the Samaritan woman, just talking casually, talking about water, then, and then moving on to religion and things. And he's very comfortable with these people. There is another podcast called On Being. And in the May 17th episode of 2018, it's titled How Friendship and Quiet Conversations Transformed a White Nationalist. It demonstrates how eating, simply befriending and eating with someone can transform their beliefs. So it's about Derek Black, who is a white nationalist and his father run, uh, had run a, a really well-known white nationalist radio program and he grew up that way. And um, he is befriended by a Jewish Orthodox, Matthew Stevenson, who invites him to their weekly Shabbat dinners. And what happened was over two years of time, they became friends and Derek Black changed his view of white nationalism and accepted these Jews as not just people, but people he loves and cherishes. Jesus ate with people. Jesus befriended people. He treated them like humans. And sometimes it might be hard for us to understand others, but that's why we must listen to them. Must hear their stories. You know, we must, we must relate to what they're feeling. What are you going through? How, how does that affected you? Tell me your story. Where do you come from? What do you enjoy to do? And perhaps if we stop stereotyping others, stop labeling others, then we will stop forming and casting our own idols around us. Idols, as the Psalms say, have eyes, ears, nose, legs, but they don't hear, smell, speak, move at all. They're just projections of something. You know, when we stereotype people, class them by their race or other things and label them and they're the other, they're them, we're making them an, an idol in a sense. Not one that we adore, but we're robbing them of their humanity. And an idol is the form of a person just without its humanity. Let's let those around us come alive and be humans. And then maybe the, the idolatry of racism will finally fall. If you have any questions or comments or want to suggest a topic to discuss you can always email me at brandonmcculloch at calvarychapel.com. That's B-R-A-N-D-O-N at C-A-L-V-A-R-Y-C-H-A-P-E-L dot com. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude. Thank you for listening. <laughs>